We are about to embark on a journey through the book of Exodus. I'm very excited about that. Why did I choose Exodus? Well, there's a number of reasons. Let me give you three reasons I chose Exodus. First of all, we get to know God better in the book of Exodus. God's goal in Exodus is to make himself known. It's to display his glory. It's to make it clear that he is the only God and there's none like him. Uh, maybe this is your first time here at Sasha Baptist Church. You're visiting. Maybe you're not yet a Christian, but you're interested in knowing who God is. Well, this is a great book to study if you want to know God better. We're going to learn about his heart. We're going to learn about his compassion, his faithfulness, his love to his people. We're going to learn about his holiness and his glory in, in Exodus. That's the first reason. Second reason, this may surprise you, we get to know Jesus in this book. That may sound strange because here we are, the second book in the Old Testament. Jesus is all the way in the New Testament. So why would I say we get to know Jesus in Exodus? Well, we see a pretty dynamic picture of salvation in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of salvation in the Old Testament. And what we see is a pattern that runs all the way through Scripture and finds its culmination in Jesus in the New Testament. So Exodus is, provides all these shadows that point forward to the real substance that's Jesus. So we're going to see lots of Jesus in Exodus as we preach through it. Exodus is the first time God reveals himself to be redeemer, deliverer, savior to God's people. The third reason is more personal. At the end of every calendar year, Jenny and I, we take some time to uh, assess the last year and we, we pray and we give God thanks for what he did in the previous year and we, we make goals for the upcoming year. And in 2013, I had a rough year. I don't know exactly what was going on then, but uh, there was no major crisis, there's no major sin, but I was feeling spiritually dry in 2013. Many of you maybe can relate to me. Have you ever felt spiritually dry before? Well, that year I felt spiritually dry, and, and so I called out to God every day in 2014. I prayed daily that God would bring revival to my heart, revival to Jenny's heart. That was my prayer every day in 2014. And slowly, it was so slowly, but slowly I began to see God answer that prayer. In fact, it was so slow that I couldn't see the answer until maybe nine or ten months in. And guess what I studied that year? I studied the book of Exodus. Maybe you're in a spiritually dry season and you feel like there's not much you can do, but maybe you can pray, maybe you can seek God, maybe you can beg God, earnestly pray to him and ask him to revive you as we study Exodus. In fact, that's a good prayer for the, the whole church. Pray and ask God, seek him. Lord, would you bring spiritual reawakening to our lives? Um, you notice this bookmark in your um, bulletins. This is just to help you know where we're going in Exodus. Uh, we're going to be taking Exodus in three portions. The first portion, you'll see at the top, it says the God who saves. That's the first section in the book of Exodus. It's the first 18 chapters, and you'll see here the sermons that we'll be preaching through that first section. So take some time maybe to read ahead. We also have study guides that are in the upper lobby. You can pick one of those up and you can jump in to Exodus with us, okay? Let's pray together. Father, 
May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts this morning be acceptable to you because you are our Lord and our rock. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may know that the most pivotal battle in the U.S. Civil War was the Battle of Gettysburg. And if you're a Civil War buff, you may realize that the most pivotal moment in the Battle of Gettysburg was when Joshua Chamberlain, a commander of about 300 troops, was asked by his commanding officer, you got to hold this little hill. It's day two, Battle of Gettysburg. You got to hold little round top. So his commander, he pointed to this hill and he said, you and your 20th Maine Regiment, you've got to hold this hill at whatever cost it is to you and your regiment, you've got to hold this hill because you are the leftmost flank of the Union Army. And if you don't hold this hill, then the whole Union Army is going to be swept away. So Joshua Chamberlain and his, uh, his 300 troops, he, they found themselves defending wave after wave of Confederate troops to the point where they ended up running out of ammunition. And so he does something completely unorthodox. He commands his troops, you know, you may know the story, he commands his troops to fix bayonets and charge down the hill. That's what they did, and they ended up winning that battle. Completely unorthodox strategy, but later Chamberlain was heralded as not only a military genius, but really what most folks remember about this moment in the battle was his resolve and his troops' courage and resolve. You know, of course, we wake up every day and we face a spiritual battle too, don't we? Every day we wake up, we face a spiritual battle. Our enemies are the world. Our enemies are the flesh, the sinful flesh that rages on inside of us, and the devil. But our answers to these foes It's not to create genius strategies. It's not to muster up courage and resolve. I mean, those things are good. But our ultimate strategy, the answer that's going to work is God. God is working for his people. God is strategizing for his people. God is resolved to win the victory for his people. Exodus is a book about God's resolve in the war for his people. That's what Exodus is really all about. You may have heard recently Muhammad Ali passed away just a couple days ago. Muhammad Ali was my dad's favorite boxer. And so, you know, growing up, I I got to know Muhammad Ali. And, uh, you know, these boxing fight nights, you've got these preliminary fights on the ticket, and then you've got the main event, right? Muhammad Ali against uh, George Foreman, the rumble in the jungle or against Joe Frazier, or against Sonny Liston. That's the main ticket on these cards. Well, Exodus has lots of preliminary fights, but the main event on the fight card is God against Pharaoh. That's the main ticket. And the battleground in the fight is the hearts of God's people. Who's going to win out for Israel? That's the question we have as we approach Exodus. Is Pharaoh going to have his way with Israel? Or is God going to have his way with Israel? Let's look at the first seven verses of Exodus, and what we see here is the setting of this chapter. First seven verses of Exodus, it's found on page 55 in your pew Bible. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. 
Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with that. Now you can't see it here in our English Bibles, but the first word in Exodus is actually and, ants. English teachers say you can't start a sentence with and, well you tell them God started a whole book with and. So what, what does and tell us here at the beginning of Exodus? Well, Exodus is the next chapter of Genesis. It's picking up right where Genesis left off. So we see here in the first few verses, the sons of Jacob, they went to Egypt. They went there to escape a famine. They grew, grew to about 70 in Egypt. But we got to remember, this wasn't some random family, right? This was a special family. This is the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. They were marked out by God. They were blessed by God. And we know that because God had given them some very precious promises. Very precious promises. What were those promises? Well, they would multiply. They would become a great nation. God would eventually give them some land. They would prosper. Those who blessed God's people, God would bless. Those who cursed God's people, God would curse. And they would be a blessing to other people. So these are all the promises that God gave to this family. Now look again at verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers, so all of the patriarchs, all of the leaders of that generation, all of them died. And that's how Genesis ends. So this brings up some questions, right? All the patriarchs are dead, so who's going to lead this family? Only 70 descendants. Well, what about God's promise to make them into a great nation? What about God's promise about land? Because they seem to be hunkering down in Egypt here. What's going to happen to God's people? Well, verse 7 begins to answer some of our questions. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So the family tree grew at this miraculous pace. The sapling of 70 became a sequoia of 2 million people. Two million people. So life was good in Egypt. Maybe we get a little glimpse of paradise here in verse 7. Why would we say that? Well, doesn't the language of verse 7 remind us of God's words in the Garden of Eden? Be fruitful, multiply, fill up the land. In other words, God is making good on his promises. He's doing it. It's happening. That's what we see in verse 7. But as we read on in chapter 1, we'll also see a great spiritual battle that occurs between God and Pharaoh. So let's read verses 8 through 22. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have uh, have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God. And did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I'm not going to comment on that verse, by the way. Just to, <laughs> I'm going to say that up front. Verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. In these verses, I see two encouragements for God's people at war. Two encouragements for God's people at war. Here's the first. God keeps his promises no matter what. God keeps his promises no matter what. This is verses 8 through 14. So here we see in this first scene, we see a rather dark chapter in the history of Israel. Israel went from favor to disgrace pretty quickly. They went from privilege to persecuted. It's all because this new king shows up on the scene. And he's like, uh, Joseph who? Who's this Joseph? Who are these people? And why do they have our best land? You see, another passage of Scripture tells us that Goshen was Egypt's most fertile land. So what does Pharaoh do? What does this new king do? He oppresses and enslaves God's people. So yes, they multiply, but they're multiplying as slaves. Verses 13 and 14 take a look at all of these descriptions that that tell us about this horrible enslavement, worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter, hard labor, all kinds of work. He used them ruthlessly. So as extravagant as God's blessing was to them, this this incredible, uh, miraculous multiplication, so severe were the circumstances of their lives as well. In 400 years, 400 years they endured this. Can you imagine that? That's about 15 generations 400 years. That's more years than this country has been around. A long time. That's a long time to keep believing God's promises. You've got to imagine these people who knew of these promises, they must have been asking questions, right? I mean, what about all these promises, God, that you made to Abraham? What about all these promises that you made to our forefathers to take care of us, to bless us, to give us land? Is God going to come through? As we said earlier, this is a much, much bigger uh, story than just a bad king persecuting some minority people. This is cosmic warfare, God against Pharaoh. At this point in time, Egypt is a great superpower. And so Pharaoh is literally the most powerful man in the world at this point. And so this king, this powerful man, he directly thwarts God's purpose to multiply. That's what he's trying to do. 
just like the satanic beast of Genesis was crafty. Notice, notice verse, um, verse 10, come, he says, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So this Pharaoh is scheming and plotting against God's people. His first scheme in verses 8 through 14 is to control them through slavery. His second scheme, and we'll see this in a minute, verses 15 through 22, is to kill them through infanticide, genocide. But the whole thing, everything we see in chapter 1, the whole thing is an assault on God's promises and his purposes and his plans to multiply his people. It's an attempt to chop down Israel's family tree. Now look at verse 12. What do you see happening in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And this is nuts, right? God still blesses his people. The people still grow. They grow more numerous. They grow stronger. And this is shocking because these are, these are people that are enslaved. Well, it tells us something that is really important. It's an important lesson for us this morning. God still blesses his people regardless of their difficult circumstances. We can rely on God's promises even if we're going through something very painful and difficult. There's two realities that were true of God's Old Testament people in this chapter. Blessing on one hand, yes. Difficult circumstances on the other. Prospering in some ways, yes, but painful circumstances as well. So somehow joy and sorrow are simultaneously existing for the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, can you relate? Some of you are living under difficult circumstances right now. Your family life is in turmoil. Maybe your marriage is falling apart and you're sitting there next to your spouse and maybe you, maybe you fought on the way to church. Maybe you hate your job or you don't have a job to hate. Maybe you wish you were married. Maybe you just want one friend. Just one real friend. If God would provide just one real friend, and so in the midst of this, the question for us, brothers and sisters, is will we believe? Can you believe that the God who brought you into such difficult circumstances will also bring you out of such difficult circumstances for his glory, for your good? Can you believe that even if he doesn't bring you out quickly, that his blessing and his favor and his love is still upon you? God keeps his promises no matter what. God blesses his people no matter what. God's favor hasn't left his people just because things are tough. His plans, his purposes are unstoppable. His promises are unbreakable. No matter what, he will come through. Bless you. So we see some Old Testament promises here. Well, what about us? What about New Testament promises that God has given to us? Can you think of some? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you some of the most precious promises that God has given his people. You know, in the summers, I love to eat um, pineapple. It's one of my favorite fruits. My family, Jenny, Sam, and Emma, they, they enjoy watermelon. I like pineapple. And uh, my favorite part of 
uh, parts of pineapple are the, the chunks that are dark and ripe. You know, there's the lighter parts. I kind of push them to a side. There's the darker parts. I eat the lighter side because I just cut them up. I have to. But the darker bites are the best, right? I mean, they're so juicy. They're so yummy. Well, Romans 8 contains the juiciest promises, the most delectable promises in all of Scripture. Okay? So let me point out eight. Not eight. That would take a while. Let me point out four promises. Verse 1. If you're a Christian, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? If you're a Christian, you are no longer condemned. It doesn't matter your situation. It doesn't matter your circumstances. Because of Jesus, you will never experience judgment or anger or the wrath of God. God will never glare at you. He will only smile at you. You will only experience his affection. If you're a Christian, verse 15, for you... Christian, did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. If you're a Christian this morning, you are no longer a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. You have a family. You will never be alone. Think about that. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? We just sang about this. If you're a Christian, you will no longer fight alone in this life. You will never fight alone. You may feel alone in your new circumstances, but God is for you. He is fighting for you. Every single day, God is working for your good. He is fighting for your good. Even though you may not feel like that's true, it's true. And then lastly, verses 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a Christian this morning, you no longer will ever feel unloved. You'll never feel unloved. His love is always there for you. You can always count on his love. What will separate us from the love of Jesus? Will will family troubles? Will, Will singleness Will strained friendships or or losing friendships, will um, the shame from your past life, will difficult marriages, will hurt reputations, none of these things, brothers and sisters, will separate you from the love of Jesus. That's the Old Testament people, that's, excuse me, the New Testament people of God promises for us. We see the Old Testament people had promises as well. And we got to know our promises. We've got to know that God is for us and that his love is strong in our lives. So I want to encourage you, learn these promises. Whether it's Romans 8 or somewhere else, learn about what God has promised you. Memorize them, meditate on them. One of the things that you can do, you know, maybe you're not going through a difficult time in your life right now, maybe things are smooth for you, but I bet, I bet you know one person right now, things are hard, 
maybe changing circumstances in their lives. Can you think of one person? And maybe right now, maybe right now your role is to help them remember these precious promises. And so it's, it's so important, yeah, to listen to them, to, to wrap your arms around them, to weep with them, to be there for them. But would you also speak these promises to them? Would you do that? Maybe you're not yet a Christian and you're thinking, man, how do I get in on these promises? They're great. How do you get in on these promises? Well, the path is repentance and faith. You need to repent of your sins, turn away from your past life, and give yourself to Jesus. Not only these promises, but a whole slew of other promises will be yours if you do that. So is there anything we can do during the spiritual war? God's working for us, we see that, but is there anything we can do during this spiritual war? We can trust that God's promises won't fail us. Okay, that's what we just talked about. We can pray a lot. We can be faithful with what God has given us. Yeah, that's true. Let me give you one specific application of this passage I don't think we talk about a lot. If God's distinct blessing is on the multiplication of his people, then one thing we can do, get ready for this, one thing we could do is to have lots of babies and teach them about Jesus. Make lots of babies, teach them about Jesus. Do you know the world's fertility rate right now? Uh, excuse me, the world's fertility rate in 1979, it was 6.0. Okay, so a point of reference, you need 2.0 fertility rate to replace yourself. Today, the rate uh, is 2.52 in the world. America's fertility rate is 1.93, which is below replacement rate. And, you know, there's a, there's a worldly trend going around, and it's teaching this uh, doctrine that having children is a liability. You've seen this in the papers? Have you, have you recognized this kind of subtle teaching? Having children is a liability. It's too much work. They cost lots of money. They're a distraction from living the good life. And apparently this doctrine is landing well on people in our country. Did you know there's major cities in the United States where there's more dogs than children? It's kind of sad. But God right here in Exodus chapter 1 reminds us that children are not a liability. No, children are a source of hope. Children are a sign of divine blessing. I'm not saying you've got to have kids. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there's something to be said about having children if you are able. Be fruitful and multiply. I think we can take that literally. It's okay to do that. I got some numbers from our uh, illustrious nursery director, Kate Dupre. So we have, in this church, about 100 kids registered between the ages of zero and four. 100 kids, that's a lot. Do you know how many new births we've had in the last 24 months? Can you guess? Five new births? Ten new births? We've had 20 new births in the last two years. Isn't that great? (laughs) And there's more coming, too. So here's the thing. We're doing it. (laughs) We're doing it. We're doing a good job, but I think we can do more. I think we can do more. That's my application. Here's the point. I do have a point. Here's the point. One way, one way we assault the kingdom of darkness is to have babies and teach them about Jesus. Do you see that? 
One way we assault the kingdom of, of darkness is to adopt kids or foster kids and teach them about Jesus. And I know there's families in this church that are doing that. Praise God. Now, you might, you might say to me, Godwin, I, I can't have children. I physically am unable to have children. Or I'm single, so I'm not in a situation where I should have children. But, you know, maybe you can volunteer in the Sunday school downstairs. Teach kids about Jesus. They're eager to learn about Jesus. Maybe you can volunteer uh, at VBS in July. We have a couple hundred kids in this very room. And what's our goal? Our goal is to tell them about Jesus and to help them follow Christ. So think about volunteering for VBS. It doesn't have to be biological descendants. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It can be spiritual descendants. But here's the point. Investing spiritually in the next generation is a critical strategy in our war against the devil. So have babies. Teach them about Jesus. So the first point, God keeps his promises no matter what. God keeps his promises no matter what. Here's the second point. God blesses those who fear him. God blesses those who fear him. Verses 15 through 22. Let me read this just to remind us of this passage. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So first, Pharaoh tries to control Israel. He tries to dominate Israel. That didn't work. So what does he do here? Now it's genocide. Now it's infanticide. Drastic measures were now needed. Now notice that Pharaoh isn't named at all in this chapter. Actually, he's not named at all in this whole book. But there's two women that are named. They're memorialized here, and that's because they are the real heroes of Exodus chapter 1. Shifra and Pua. Remember these two women, Shifra and Pua. Why were they memorialized here in Exodus chapter 1? Well, it's because of verse 17. Midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They obeyed God. Look at verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So not only did they obey God, but God rewarded them, blessed them with their own families. He multiplied through these midwives. Imagine the president of the United States coming to your home and he, he demands that you do something for him. He's demanding it and you're, you know, it's something that goes against your conscience. Perhaps most of the country is on his side and you're in the minority and there he is in front of you and you feel the, the full force of his personality and his influence and his power. It's so hard to say no, right, in that moment. And you've got no resources. You have no power relative to his. He's got all the resources and every power at his disposal. How in the world will you refuse him? 
And in the case of the midwives, the Pharaoh could have, could have easily killed them, just like that. The pressure was on, right? But they obeyed God. It's one thing to be steady and faithful and trust God when the battle is raging on in front of you or around you, but it's, it's not really touching you. It's, it's kind of on the fringes of your life. But it's a whole other thing when the battle comes into your own living room, when you are put to the test, when you are challenged and pressured to disobey and to fudge a little bit or to compromise a little bit on God's ways. That's an entirely different situation, isn't it? God acts to bless his people by multiplication. We see that. And Pharaoh here, he's acting, acting to curse God's people with a sort of private infanticide. Interesting. Why so quietly, Pharaoh? Why ask these two women to take care of these babies behind the scenes? He could have easily ordered their slaughter. He does that eventually, but at this point, why does he do it so quietly? Do you see how Pharaoh's method for killing children is similar to 21st century abortion? Do this discreetly. Don't do it publicly. Do it behind closed doors. Make no mistake, this was state-sanctioned abortion in Egypt. That's what we see here in chapter 1. Do you know in 2015 there were almost 1 million legal abortions conducted in the United States? Since Roe v. Wade, so that's 1973, there have been 58 million abortions in this country. 58 million abortions. Last summer, the Planned Parenthood videos, I'm sure you've heard about this, came out. And, 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 and one of the redemptive things about these videos is it made what was kind of private public. You know, there were, there were media writers, there were... Uh, uh, reporters that, that felt like, you know, we will never talk about abortion. That was their stance. But these videos pushed them. They could no longer stop talking about this issue of abortion. What had been fairly private became public. And it had become, at least to some, because of these videos, it became despicable, and rightly so. It's interesting in this chapter, God says, I will bless you with multiplication. And Pharaoh and the gods of this world, they say, I will curse you with debts. I will curse you with debts that are masked by a profound self-interest. Isn't that what abortion is? So friends, whose side will you be on in the 21st century? Will you side with the gods of this world or will you side with the God of the universe? The church must take a stand against the pharaohs of this world. Not because this is a political issue. I am not making a political comment right now. I'm making a Bible comment. This is a biblical issue. This is also a human issue. Because Christians are motivated. Christians are for the flourishing and the good of human beings. You know, there's mercy for you if you've made a decision to have an abortion or you've pressured someone else to have an abortion. You come here this morning and, and man, this is hard. It's hard to talk about this. 
Maybe you're there, you're carrying this burden quietly, silently. I want you to know there's so much mercy in Christ, isn't there? For me, for you, for all of us, there's so much mercy in Christ. And if you run to the cross, you're going to find forgiveness. Maybe you need that this morning. Would you run to him? So we applaud these women for finding a way to obey God. We do. But where did they get the resources to obey God? Where did they get the resources to obey God? Take a look one more time at verses 17 and verses 21. Verses 17 and 21. Do you see why they obeyed God? Why did they obey God? Somebody. They feared God. They feared God. That was the motivating force behind their obedience. And you know, it's not just the midwives that feared God. Excuse me, it's not just the midwives who feared something. Pharaoh was fearing something too. Pharaoh was fearing the people of Israel. He fears the people of Israel. The midwives fear God. And here's the thing. Both of these fears control their actions and their decisions It shaped what they did. It shaped what they didn't do. Everyone in this room is motivated by fear. Every one of us. All of us have different kinds of fears. Fears of being alone. Fear of rejection. Fear of disappointing your parents. Fear of heights. Fear of water. Fear of being in crowds. Fear of death. All kinds of fears. And we're all motivated by these different fears. And here's the thing. These fears shape what we do, how we act, and what we say. It shapes us. Every day they control us. The fear of God controlled these two women, and look what they did. The fear of people controlled Pharaoh, and look what he did. Look where he ended up. So what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? The Proverbs tell us that The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. If you want to be wise, it's important to fear God. These women were wise. And if that's the wood that ignites the fires of obedience in our lives, we've got to understand what it means. Let me give you a definition. I'll say this a couple times. Fearing God is an attitude of respect, reverence, and awe that leads to wholehearted submission and obedience. Fearing God is an attitude of respect, reverence, and awe that leads to wholehearted submission and obedience. And so you fear God when you recognize that, wait a second, there's somebody above me. There's someone who's watching me. There's someone who knows my thoughts. And he takes a deep interest in everything that I think and say and do. That's the fear of God. You fear God when God's purposes and God's plans and God's laws are weightier in your heart than anything else. Now, this is not a slavish fear. This is not a dread of God. This is not a sense that God hates us or God condemns us. If you're a Christian, that's all done away with. If you have a good father growing up, then I think you understand this pretty well. Your dad was the boss. Don't mess with your dad, right? If you did something wrong, mama's going to say, hey, just wait till your dad gets home. And so those two and three and four hours, I remember... Man, they're scary moments, right? And then your dad walks in the door, and he's not even thinking about you, but you think he's, mama's, mama's told him, mama's told him, he's thinking about me. 
Well, that's a good fear. That's a good fear. And here's the, here's the reason it's good. is because he's good. Because he loves you. Because he's your father. And you respect him. You revere him. And you desperately want to please him. That's the fear of a good father. And that's also much like the fear, a healthy fear of God. So if we're going to be successful in this spiritual war, then we must learn to fear God more than we fear other things. We must learn to to cultivate a fear of God that's greater than the fear of people. What is it that a healthy fear of God would change in your life? Would you still go to that party? Would you sleep with your girlfriend? Would you get drunk yet again? Would you dishonor your parents? Would you cheat on your spouse? Would you cheat on that test? Would you show favoritism? Would you tease that kid? What is it that a healthy fear of God would change in your life? You know, we could look at it another way, a more positive way. Fearing God spurs us to do extraordinary things for God. One of our own missionary families, the Grays, they're reaching out uh, in Burkina Faso. They're taking the gospel to new villages in Burkina Faso. Uh, Just last summer, you probably read about this, there were two Christians that were killed by radical jihadists. And now there's regular fighting among the villages, there's strong terrorist influence, and so every day, this family, they wake up with their team, they wake up every day, they've got little kids, they wake up and they have to face all kinds of fears. Fear of uncertainty, physical discomfort, threats, persecution. This is what they face every day. But they fear God more than they fear man. And what does that look like? How does that show up? Well, they continue to blanket the country with more missionaries. They continue to plant churches in hard places. They continue to preach the gospel. They continue to train up local leaders. Because they fear God more than they fear man. We gotta be praying for the grays and all of our missionaries. We gotta be praying for ourselves as we're sharing Christ on the South Shore that in the midst of all of that, we would fear God more than we would fear man. So two encouragements for those in the war. First, God keeps his promises no matter what. And second, God blesses those who fear him. You know, chapter one has a very sad ending, doesn't it? Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. It was once private, now it's going public. What's going public? Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So Pharaoh says here, throw the boys in the Nile. And in chapter 2, God says, okay, I will throw a boy in the Nile and I will raise up a man who will deliver my people. Pharaoh says here, bloody up the Nile, and God says, okay, I'll make the Nile bloody. It's coming. What do we learn? We learn that God, at every step, has the victory. At every moment, you think things are lost, but they are not. He has the ultimate victory. So the greatest encouragement we have in the spiritual war is that God will have his victory in the end. He has the victory in Exodus. He has the victory in our lives. 
And he does this ultimately through his son, Jesus. That's where we finally and fully see God's resolve to fight for his people in Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So yes, the war rages on for now. But in the meanwhile, his promises are sure, his blessings are eternal, and he will never let his people go. Let's pray. Father, this war that we fight on a daily basis is hard. It can be discouraging sometimes. We confess to you that sometimes we fear people more than we fear you. And oh, Father, that affects what we say and do and how we live, and it affects our evangelism, it affects our love, it affects our words. Oh, Father, would you help us, please, to fear you more? Would you show us what it looks like to cultivate a healthy fear and reverence of you above all things? Father, we're so grateful for your promises to us, which are sure and true. They're unbreakable. Teach us these promises. Help us to trust them and rest on them this week. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he he is our victory. He is our ultimate victory. And as we think about Christ, as we think about the cross and the resurrection, we are grateful that he is one for us. Thank you, Father, that you will never let us go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.